1: 40 minutes, it's a big task to deal with such a vast subject, but I will try and touch on the the basic points. If anybody wants to do any historical reading on this, I would suggest Trotsky's writings on China in the 1930s. I would suggest Ted Grant's material after the Second World War, what he wrote in 1948 and in the 60s. And then of course, more recent material our document, uh, The Long March to Capitalism, and other articles on China are available on Um, marxist.com. Now, what is the Chinese regime? It's a good question, and we have to be able to answer it concretely. Because, you see, when you're struggling to change society and you present yourself as Marxist or communist or socialist, you're inevitably going to get the question, uh, do you want to create a regime like the one we had in Russia under Stalin? Do you want to create a regime like the one we have in China? If the answer to that is yes, I'm telling you a lot of workers, are going to say, I'm sorry, not interested. Um, it, wouldn't, it would not enhance the cause of uh, socialism. It would uh, stifle it. And yet we have to answer the question, what were these regimes and what is uh, China? Now, recent um, little bit of news that uh, came out was that um, the the number of billionaires in China this year increased by 257. Now China has 878 billionaires. Um, the United States has 626. There are something like 2,000 individuals in China now who have a, a total wealth in their hands of $4 trillion. And this year, they earned more than ever before. Now, if we were to believe some of today's Stalinists, apologists, let's say, for these regimes, we'd have to believe that um, they're building socialism in, uh, in China. But what I just said um, seems somewhat to contradict that. And yet I've actually heard Chinese Stalinists arguing that we're building socialism through capitalism, you see, um, which is an interesting way of building socialism i.e. by allowing the profit motive to be unleashed. Um, Another question is, a genuine socialist regime oppressing nations, national groups, such as the Uyghurs, or unleashing the brutal repression of the movement in Hong Kong. Is that socialism? Is that what socialism is about? If you argue that... You're welcome to go and try and um, uh, I haven't got time to go into the details of it, but what is socialism? Well, let's put it this way. What is it must be based, one, public ownership with the means of production planned economy, but that's not enough. It also must be based on democratic workers' control and management of those means of production. It must be based on the workers' rights to assemble, to debate, to criticize, to elect their leaders. It must be based on the principle that the people who are elected can be recalled by the workers who elected them at any moment. And furthermore, they must not earn more than the average wage of a worker. Question. Do we have that in China today? I don't think you need to uh, worry too much about looking this up on the Internet to get the right answer. Um, You don't have to do a Google on that one. I think it's abundantly clear that that is not what we have in China today. We actually have not just these billionaires, they're members of the Communist Party. They use the Communist Party to promote their interests. They're tightly connected with the bureaucracy of the Communist um, Party. Now, in 1949, there was a revolution um, which abolished capitalism and landlordism, feudalism established the economic, let's say, the economic premises for a, uh, the creation of a worker state. But never since day one were there the elements of workers' democracy. Right from the beginning, that regime modeled itself on um, Soviet, uh, the Soviet Union, but not the Soviet Union of 1920 or 22 or 23, the Soviet Union of 1949, i.e., a Stalinist dictatorship. Um, So uh, right from the beginning, it was already what we would define as a deformed worker state, i.e. you have the economic base for a worker state, i.e. you have the nationalization, you have the public ownership, you have planning, but it's not under the control of the working class. And if it's not under the control of the working class, somebody else obviously is running society. And that's somebody else is a bureaucracy standing above society, above uh, the working class. Now, I haven't got time here to go and quote uh, Trotsky, but Trotsky pointed out that once you have such a deformation, in the case of the Soviet Union, a degeneration of the revolution and the, uh, the rise of a bureaucracy, a privileged bureaucracy, earning above the average wage of the workers, standing above society, Implicit in that is the danger of capitalist restoration, because the bureaucracy would not be satisfied simply with being a privileged bureaucrat who's creaming off some of the wealth produced in the plan, but would want to become owners of the wealth, direct owners, direct owners of the means of production, and to pass it on to their heirs, to their offspring. Trotsky makes that point. And when Trotsky made that point, he was attacked by the Stalinists. How dare you uh, attacking socialism, communism, all the rest of it? History now has come full circle. Was Trotsky correct to raise that point? Where did capitalism come from in Russia? Who promoted capitalism in the Soviet Union when it collapsed? It came from within the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. You look at even Putin used to have a Communist Party card in his in his pocket, and. In China, what we have is a process whereby, from within the bureaucracy, you've had the promotion of, um, of, uh, of, of capitalism. Now, um, after 1949, there was a development of the Chinese economy. Um, between 1957 and 1970, it was growing by something like 8-9% a year. Just to give you an example, in 1952, China was producing 1,000 tractors in this huge country. 1976, 190,000. So there was development. There was a step forward um, for society. China was actually, on average, growing faster than the capitalist West um, in in that period. Of course, that was starting from a very, very low level of um, economic development, um, and therefore, it had a lot to do in terms of catching up with the advanced economies of countries like uh, the United States or Western Europe, Japan, um, etc. Um, but um, nonetheless, there was um, a development. Um, but just to give you an example, of what I was talking about the privilege in 1976, an industrial worker working about 48 hours a week was earning about $12 a month. Professionals, on the other hand, were earning $120 a month. That's already a difference of 10 to 1. There you have the danger of the capitalist restoration, i.e. that privileged layer has an interest in first maintaining that position, i.e. of privilege, and then finding ways of guaranteeing that privilege is is um, is preserved um, now i haven't got time to deal with a lot of the questions which i'd like to deal with but we cover a lot of this in our in our written material but let's look back a little bit at, at the history in the 1970s it was clear the soviet union was in severe crisis it's um its rate of economic growth had slowed first down to two or three percent, i.e. slower than the capitalist West, and then eventually it hit zero growth. And that's where you had all, you know, the scenes of shops that were empty, uh, lack of goods, uh, etc. Um, In the meantime, in China, you had the um, conflict within the bureaucracy, which is basically between the Mao wing, you could say, and what was to become the Deng wing of the the, uh, party. Um, The the Gang of Four, after the death of Mao, were trying actually to launch a second cultural revolution. Um, But um, with Mao gone, the bureaucracy felt far more confident and uh, stopped them, arrested them. And then uh, by 1978, you have um, Deng Xiaoping at the top of the party who begins the process which led us to where we are today. Uh, that process was opening up China to foreign capitalist investment. He began by promoting four Special economic zones, not by chance, they were around Hong Kong and Macau, um, which were still, uh, which were pockets of capitalism. Let's say on, on in China, um, in, in Guangdong and Fujian, um, we would argue that when they started on this road, there was no preconceived plan. It's not as if Deng said, "Right, we're going to launch this plan, and in forty years' time, China's going to be." Uh, capitalist that wasn't the the way things developed it would be too much to think that that was how how far ahead he, he could uh, see we would argue there was a, a logic in what they were doing in the sense that there's a certain similarity here with the nep the new economic policy that was launched in the 20s in the soviet union i.e um, in the backwardness of the economy in order to attract foreign investment, i.e. of foreign technique and technology, um, you you can open up to these private investors in an attempt to advance further your own economy. Also, allowing sectors um, such as the small farmers, etc., to sell their goods um, in the market. Um, Now, it started off as a way of trying to stimulate growth And develop the economy, Um, but it it, step by step it moved closer and closer to a moment where the economy actually was transformed. Um, For instance, in 1983, the state-owned enterprises were allowed to hire workers on a contract basis for a temporary period. Thus, the old guaranteed for life jobs began um, to go more and more the profit motive was introduced as a criteria for for the functioning of the economy. Um, In the mid-1980s, however, we're still within the sphere of using market stimuli, but within the plan, where the plan still dominated and the state sector still dominated. Um, But already you see how the terminology begins to change. In 1984, for instance, at the 12th Congress of the party, they started talking about a planned commodity economy. Um, in 1987, at the 13th Party Congress, they developed the idea of an export oriented economy. And you see, if you have an export oriented economy, that means you're orientating your economy to sell goods in the world market. So you start to begin to function according to the needs of the world market. And capitalism was still the dominant mode of production On a global scale, which is an important factor in determining the way things turned out. Um, Now, this uh, led to a big increase in importation of machinery in order to develop the industry, and a sharp rise in China's balance of trade deficit in that period. And in 88-89, we had the emergence of inflation, 18% a year, for example. Um, And Uh, we had what in a planned economy is is an anomaly is the first recession in 1989, which um, comes at the same time not by chance. This is what is the background to the movement of Tiananmen. Um, Student protests, but also very importantly, the working class began to intervene in 1989. Um, we, We published something interesting recently written by some Chinese um, lefts who written some very interesting material about what happened at that time, and about the role of the working class. I.e., the working class began to move independently in an attempt, also, to build its own organisations. That's why the bureaucracy clamped down so hard on Tiananmen. They could not tolerate an independent movement of the working class. Ten minutes, no. The The. Put yourselves in the shoes of the bureaucrats in China. You have Tiananmen. You have the potential, the potential for a political revolution in China at that time. You look across the border in the Soviet Union and in Eastern Europe, and in 1989, you have the movement beginning in one country and then spreading right across the whole of Eastern Europe, finally, with the collapse of the regime in Romania in a very violent way the whole of Eastern Europe, the regimes collapsed and began to revert to capitalism. Within a short period of time, 1991, the Soviet Union collapses um, with a huge collapse in, uh, in production. Um, and not just the collapse of the Soviet Union uh, as, um, as, as a deformed worker state, eh, the collapse of the plan, the Soviet Union breaks up into its component parts, into the 15 republics who become independent and the power of the old Soviet bureaucracy enormously weakened. The Chinese bureaucracy are observing this before it happened, the crisis and the slowdown of the Soviet Union. And what we see is the bureaucracy clamps down in 1989, 1989, slows down the process of reform for a short while to try and restabilize the situation. And then from 1992 onwards, process starts to accelerate again. And for for instance, at the 14th Party Congress, they came up with the the term a socialist market economy with Chinese characteristics. What is a socialist market economy? The two things are uh, in complete contradiction. What they did is they began um, a process of privatization, 2,500 local, smaller state-owned enterprises were prepared for privatization and about 100 centrally run um, state-owned enterprises. And By 1998, all of these had been privatized. Um, At the same time, the Chinese bureaucracy were not going down this road to open up China completely to multinational corporations and to imperialist domination by the US, Europe, Germany, Japan etc. they held on to about a thousand of the major corporations. They kept them as state-owned they closed the less productive sectors they fused companies together they invested huge amounts of public money. The plan of course is, is to create competitive Chinese corporations that can hold their, their, their you know their, their, their position in, in the world market. Now um, by the end of the 1990s, the state-owned enterprises were employing something like 83 million people, which was about a 12% of total unemployment. We're still talking about an economy with a large rural um, sector. Um, in the cities, around 30% of the workers were now working in the state sector. But compare this to 1978, when 78% of urban employment was in the state sector. You see the shift that's already taken um, place. Um, and um, I have quotes here from some sources. Um, uh, this is from um, a book called The Exit the Dragon, Privatization of State Control in China by Stephen Gre- Green and Guy S. Liu. It says, we see how around by, by, by this period, around 40% of industrial output was privatized Together with this, we have the private sector that developed outside the state sector, both foreign and indigenous. I.e., you have privatization of some of the state-owned enterprises, the promotion of homegrown capitalist companies and the the coming in of foreign companies, um, which at one point represented something like 20, 25 percent of GDP in China. Um, So we see A gradual decline in the percentage of the economy, which is um, in the hands of the state sector. And then in September 99, we have what they call the let go of policy which was adopted, which is further loosening up in the medium and small state-owned enterprises. Between 1990 and 2000, between 30 and 40 million state jobs are destroyed. The so-called Rust Belt of the Northeast, where whole swathes of industry were closed, and a growing capitalist sector within the economy. This eventually led to a situation where something like 60% of GDP was being produced by private companies. The fact that 450 of the top 500 multinationals were operating in China um, is an indication of how far the process had gone. Now, the calculations of how big the, the private sector is depend on who's making the calculations, but all of them indicate that a majority of GDP is produced by private companies. Um, The Chinese trade unions and and, and the Chamber of Commerce in China even say uh, say that something like 60% of the economy is in private hands, if not more. However, we still have the big state sector, um, state-owned companies, which are being promoted and defended by By the state. Um, Now, it's because of this big state sector that there's confusion on the left, i.e., because there's so many state run companies, China must still be somehow communist. Well, you know, um, it's not just the number of state owned companies which determine the nature of an economy or a regime. Italy 1934, for example, how many of you know that 70% of the economy? Was in state hands. Um, that wouldn't you say? Oh, it must have been a worker state. Well, it was you know it was fascist Italy. Um, it wasn't obviously a worker state. It was the state intervening to save capitalism, taking over companies and running them with public money. But even in even in the seventies, Italy, fifty percent of the economy was in state hands, and in countries like Britain, France, Germany, in the nineteen seventies, thirty to thirty five percent of the economy was in the hands of the state, you know, in Britain, British Leyland, cars were being produced by the state, coals, gas, electricity, water, all of these sectors and, and, and others, the railways, they were all state run. India had five-year plans for decades. It didn't make it a worker state or a socialist economy. Um, it's not the first time that we've seen uh, capitalism being developed from the state, from the, you know, the the, the backbone of the economy was actually the state itself. We had it in, J- in Japan in the um, 1800s and in Germany under Bismarck. Um, so what I'm trying to say is state enterprises alone does not equal socialism. And even a degree of planning by itself is not uh, socialism. We have to look at the overall functioning of the economy. Um, so what we have is the building of a market economy through the state. Um, We reached a point where uh, at at its peak, I think foreign investment represented something like 28%, uh, 25% depending on the sources you look at. And the indigenous private enterprises were something like 22% about 20 years ago. Now, this growing um, private sector is something you need to look at as Marxist. You see, you can't, you, we don't limit ourselves to saying, yes, it's capitalist. No, it's uh, socialist. You look at a process and you see what direction it's going in. Now, it's 40 years that they've been on the capitalist road or building socialism through capitalism. As someone would say, if you continue on that road, you're going to get from A to B. You're no longer going to be at A. Eventually, you're going to be at B, and you're going to go beyond it. Um, at a certain point, there's a qualitative change um, takes place. And what we saw was at a certain point in the 2000s, when you start looking at the figures, looking at the facts of what's been going on, you find that um, uh, the bulk of the economy is being produced privately. The state owned enterprises are not functioning as companies within a, a planned economy, but have been given the right to, to, to hold on to the profits. They're run according to the profit motive. And you have a greater and greater connection with uh, the um, uh, a rising capitalist class. Um, 20
0: minutes, Richard.
1: Yeah. Um, I don't want to quote Trotsky here because uh, I've already said what, what, he, what he was. The, the, the famous quote about um, uh, that how the bureaucracy would eventually—he um, says here—he he, he says the victory of the bureaucracy in this decisive sphere, i.e., this growing privatization, would mean its conversion into an into a new possessing class, i.e., the bureaucracy itself become begins to transform itself into. Uh, a property class. And that's what we're seeing in China, have seen in China um, today. Um, I'm going to have to skip a lot of the stuff I have here because of the time. Um, now, the, um, yes, the um, the question of the direction. Um, Trotsky 1938 wrote a text called, Does the Soviet government still follow the principles adopted 20 years ago? Because the question was being posed, is, are they moving towards um, capitalism? And this is how he posed it. Of decisive importance in evaluating the nature of society is the following question. Is the society evolving in the direction of equality or in the direction of privilege, privileges? The answer to this question does not leave room for any doubts whatever. And then Trotsky added, 20 years after the revolution the soviet state has become the most centralized despotic and bloodthirsty apparatus of coercion and compulsion the evolution of the soviet of the soviet therefore proceeds in complete contradiction to the principles of the bolshevik program the reason for it is to be found in this that society as has already been said is evolving not towards socialism but towards the regeneration of social contradictions. That was the process. Hadn't completed yet. It remained still a planned economy, but the direction it was moving in was was the point that we have to um, uh, stress. And um, uh, Trotsky reiterated the point. He said in 1937, he said, nobody has ever denied the possibility especially in case of prolonged world decay, of the restoration of a new possessing class springing from the bureaucracy. Now, this was a brilliant analysis on the part of Trotsky. And I think that what has happened in China particularly confirms um, what he was saying. Um, The fact that we have all these billionaires now is, is, is a confirmation of a process and indicates where we have uh, reached. On the question of growing inequality, China is abundantly clear to anybody that looks at the facts and figures that China is more and more unequal, not more equal. Inequality means privilege and means the tendency towards class differentiation. Um, a, A report in 2008 by the Boston Consulting Group, concludes thus, wealth in China is highly concentrated. Less than 1% of households in China hold more than 70% of the nation's personal wealth. Even amongst these households, the richest, richest 0.1% of the, of the nation, with financial assets of more than $1 million, control approximately 45.2% of Chinese China's wealth. How more unequal do you need to get before you start to think and realize this is not the communist paradise that some people try and portray? The fact that the flag is still red and has a hammer and a stick on it means nothing in terms of the nature of the regime, in terms of the inequality that exists. Um, the... Um, I mean, there's, there's lots and lots of facts, which I, I, I don't, I, don't I, I, can, I haven't got time to, to go into, or lots of them about the, the, the degree of inequality and the poor getting poorer, etc. Although, obviously, there's a layer that's got richer, and there's a middle layer, which has risen up um, with the economic development, obviously. Um, um, right. Uh, sorry, I'm trying to skip forward. Now, you see, we, as an IMT, looked at all these facts and figures after 2000, and it, be- it was becoming clear that this was no longer a transitional regime from the previous deformed worker state, i.e. a planned economy. Still, the, let's say this is the economic base of a worker state, albeit without the workers' democracy. It was in transition. And sometimes you have to maintain the position um, that it's in transition. It hasn't completed the process yet. It's still fundamentally of a particular nature, i.e. it's still a planned economy. But we know in which direction it's going. At a certain point, Marxists have to look at a process and say, has the process stopped? Has it reversed? Has it moved on? It was clear by the 2000s that from a a whole number of statistics, facts, and figures, the process had moved further. Now, you you can never actually say exactly when something changes into something else. You know, night is night and day is day. The dawn is a moment of transition between the two. When exactly is it daytime and when exactly does nighttime cease? I don't think anybody can actually say it's that precise second, but they can say... The night was the night, and the day is the day, and we've gone from one to the other. And you have to acknowledge the fact at a certain point that that transition has taken place. And that is what we have in China. Now, it's a peculiar regime, because it's still the old bureaucracy. You'd say, oh, still the same people in power. There was no revolution, there was no counter-revolution, there was no uh, violent overthrow of one or the other. But even Lenin accepted the idea the danger of a capitalist restoration could come from within the Bolshevik party itself. He quoted a professor uh, who was bo- boasting about that possibility. And he could, see, he could see it. And yet today, so-called Marxist-Leninists can't see what Lenin could see as a possibility. And even in spite of everything that's happened, in spite of the return to capitalism in the Soviet Union in Eastern Europe and the building of capitalist market economy in China in the hands of the old um, bureaucracy, are still in power um, and still have the leaves of the state in their hands, but they have consciously guided a process towards the um, uh, development of a market economy. Now I'm going to jump forward because of lack of time. There is one positive aspect in all of this from Marx's point of view. From the point of view of the regression to a market economy, it's a step backwards in spite of all the propaganda that the market is the best thing since sliced bread look around the world today and you'll see that's no longer true. look at the situation in America look at Europe the growing unemployment the growing levels of poverty the wars the barbarism across the whole planet this is a this is capitalism not the capitalism which makes every gives everybody a nice standard of living and peace and tranquillity and you get on and enjoy your lives We're in a very critical moment but in the, to go back to China, um, it's a regressive step, and it will be abundantly clear in the, in the near future how regressive that step has been for China. But the, the one positive aspect of it is this. The enormous industrialization of China and the enormous transformation has taken place Something like 20 million people a year moving into the cities from the rural areas. It's an unfinished process, of course, that because there's still large areas of rural China, which is still pretty backward. A large section of the population is still rural. They're not at the level of the United States or Europe where the overwhelming majority of the economy now is industrial and the peasantry has been reduced to a tiny or they've actually disappeared. It's now industrial farming in, in 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 the West. In China, it's it's um, gone a long way, but not completed. But because of the size of the country and the size of the areas that have been developed, you have a massive proletariat, a working class far stronger numerically speaking than it was in 1949. A very powerful working class, in fact. Um, the biggest industrial proletariat in the world, in fact, something like 200 million um, uh, uh, workers. Now, that is where the danger for the bureaucracy lies. And it, going back to Karl Marx, they have created their own grave diggers, this, massive, this massive proletariat. And in the period, that in, the, in, the, in the last decade, the last 10 years, the early part of this decade, um, 2011, 2015, 16, we saw a massive increase in strikes, protests, etc., um, year, um, year on year on year on um, year. And uh, we published uh, material on this in, in, over the years. If you look at the statistics, um, you see this growing uh, level of, um, of militancy of the working class. Um, now that partially was cut across by the bureaucracy um, forcing some companies to make concessions pay back wages they needed to calm this situation down because it was getting out of control it also explains explains another aspect of Chinese society today um, there was a time when you had this so-called collective leadership at the top of the Chinese Communist Party and the idea that Every secretary would be in for one term and then would concede to the collective leadership at the top. And somebody else would come in as the secretary. You notice that Xi Jinping has changed that. He's centralizing power in his hands, actually. He's emerging as the strong man at the top, the Bonaparte. Um, this is combined with greater and greater repression. And. Um, What, For instance, what they're doing to the Uyghurs, the level of uh, surveillance and the methods they use there are, in effect, experimental and practicing methods which they use more widely. They've massively increased control of the the Internet in an attempt to stifle discussion, stifle debate, stop young people and workers in China from looking for ideas outside um, uh, China. And in spite of that, the other day we published an article which showed that uh, there's a mass radicalization taking place amongst the youth, um, a questioning of the regime, and in spite of all the measures they take, the young people find ways of getting around that and making um, uh, news circulate and discussion uh, take, um, uh, take place. But this increased centralization of power is an indication that the bureaucracy at the top are conscious of the dangers implicit in the situation. Their legitimacy is guaranteed by the ability to develop the economy, to be able to say, look, we've created a powerful China, we've modernized, we've increased the standard of living for a significant layer of the population. Um, All of this is what they need to, legitima- to legitimize their own regime. But a crisis of capitalism means a crisis also of uh, China. China has been slowing down in the recent years. Um, over the last 10, 15 years, we've seen China going from the extremely high levels of growth over 10%, 13, 14% in some years before the coronavirus um, crisis hit. They were hovering around the six percent mark, which is would be would be amazing for Italy or Britain. Um, for China, because of the ongoing process of urbanisation, they always said they require seven eight percent growth just to maintain stability, i.e., to create the jobs necessary to absorb the migrant labour coming in. They've reached a point where they're they're now in um, f- facing crisis and um, in uh, instability. Um, so what we have is a Chinese economy tightly connected to the world market. Um, a large, uh, uh, of the majority of the of the GDP produced in private hands, the economy functioning about um, the uh, functioning according to the laws of the market, uh, the profit motive, although it's distorted clearly by. Uh, state, promoting certain companies, forcing the banks to lend and to support certain companies because they're building Chinese capitalist companies. They have no intention of giving up on that. Um, but we have all the statistics about the growing levels of debt. China had no public debt in 1978. Now the combined total of public debt, private sector debt, corporate debt, um, mm-hmm. local administration debt and Um, household debt. The figure is something like 250% of GDP. The growing levels of bad debt um, in China, they've sustained it by constantly pumping in more and more money to sustain the economy. Probably the biggest Keynesian package we've ever seen in history of uh, public stimulation of the economy. But that cannot continue um, forever. In 2019, Here's the figure: 245 percent of GDP, the total uh, debt, and it grew by six percent uh, year on year. Um, but the predictions are that it's oh, that, that was um, the predictions are that it's going up further, and the latest figures show they've gone over 300 um, percent, and a, la- a large jump in the public debt took place earlier this year as they spent mon- massive amounts of money to uh, buy themselves out of the, um, the, the, the crisis. Um, now, they, they everybody's boasting about China now has managed to manage the COVID crisis. Uh, they did that through stringent lockdown and tracking uh, mechanisms. Hundreds of billions of uh, dollars um, in major infrastructure projects were spent to fuel growth. But the problem is that's contributing more and more to rising debt and bad loans, um, and this inevitably is preparing another another, uh, another crisis. And China is going to be a contributing factor to the world crisis of capitalism. Back in two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine, China provided an outlet for the um, uh, the capitalist Germany, for instance, was growing on the back of exports to uh, China, um, but Now China has slowed down, even though it's recovered from the the worst of the crisis earlier this year. Um, But it's a capitalist economy. Now, um, to go... I don't want to repeat things I've already said. As I said, it's integrated into the world economy. It depends a large degree on the world market. It must export. It's behaving in a way... Which is like that of an imperialist country, uh, building the road network, rail network, sea routes, etc., to guarantee um, the export of goods and the import of raw materials. Massively investing in, country, in, in continents like Africa, building roads and railways, but grabbing mineral resources. Um, it's it's uh, and it's emerged as a major power on a um, global scale. But um, you would think that that would be good for world capitalism. The problem is, when you have massive overproduction on a global scale and uh, massive overcapacity, and China has has contributed to that, building massive capacity on a global scale, scale, this must mean conflict on a global scale. You know, it's not just the Cold War that produces conflict between Russia and and the West, uh, as it was then. The First World War erupted at a time where there were no worker states or any kind of planned economy. The war was a war between powerful capitalist economies who had reached the limit of how far they could settle accounts on economic terms, i.e. through competition. They reached a point where the only way they could decide who was going to dominate was was by going to war. Now we have a conflict between China, the United States, China, Europe, Russia and Europe, Russia and the United States. And these are conflicts of powers in a period of overall crisis of, um, of world um, capitalism, um, which uh, explains the conflicts which are taking place. It explains the measures that Trump, for instance, is, is taking. Although even the American ruling class is in co- is in conflict with itself on that one, because measures you take on one uh, uh, to um, to curb imports from one country inevitably lead to tit for tat measures, and you you risk pushing the whole world economy into a global trade war, which has already begun. But we're only in the early days of. Uh, of that. So to conclude, what began as a process of stimulating the uh, planned economy with market measures, because it was done by a privileged bureaucracy and not a revolutionary communist regime with the workers in power, which would have been a very different thing, you have already a privileged bureaucracy. Um, taking into account what I said about Trotsky's analysis of that and the, what that would uh, in, entail in terms of consequences, we've ended up with the cap- a peculiar capitalist regime created by the bureaucracy of a deformed worker state. Now, from Marx's point of view, the fact that capitalism has been created in China not by a rising bourgeoisie, like the French or the British, but by an, basically another caste of people in society, shouldn't be too surprising because if you look at the way capitalism was created in Japan or Germany, you see elements of, a, of, of one class because of the global developments, and i.e. if a country is to remain powerful and to defend its national interests where capitalism dominates, you must go down the capitalist road. That's what the um, feudal aristocracy did in Germany. And that's, that's what even section, that's what a section of the, of the Japanese feudal aristocracy did in Japan. In China, a different version of that is the bureaucracy of China, seeing the collapse of Eastern Europe, seeing the crisis of the Soviet Union and the dangers that, that the alarm bells ringing there for their own system they were determined that they were going to maintain themselves as a privileged elite, and this could be done by adopting capitalist methods. Once you go, you go from a certain quantity, you produce a qualitative change. And what we've seen in China is the quantitative changes of a capitalist type over a period of decades has produced a qualitative change in the nature of the economy, and even in the nature of the bureaucracy itself and the way it's it's running uh, society. But um, the positive aspect of this is now we have, as I said earlier on, the biggest proletariat you've ever seen in history, an educated, skilled uh, working class, an educated youth, and expectations, obviously. Um, And this system that they've created inevitably will enter into crisis because it now has the contradictions of capitalism um, grafted on, let's say, to the old bu- uh, bureaucratic system. And the answer to the question, what is China, is it's an ex-deformed worker state, an ex-planned economy where the bureaucracy, in order to maintain its privilege privileges, has adopted more and more cap- capitalist methods. To the point where the nature of the economy itself has been transformed. It's a peculiar development, but um, history knows all kinds of mutations, um, uh, as we know. There's no uh, pure, clean development, you know, feudalism and capitalism, etc. Et um, but what we have now is a modern industrialized China, a powerful proletariat, Massive um, means of productions at their disposal, but the contradictions of capitalism, which have now been brought in to that economy. And as the world uh, crisis of capitalism develops, China will be impacted, and China in turn will impact on that. And the working class of China will play a key role in the future struggle for socialism. Um, they will, in the process, rediscover their own history, and they will seek out an answer to many of the questions posed by the crisis that's developing. And it's not by chance that the ideas of socialism are beginning to become popular amongst a layer of the youth in China. Um, It's inevitable because the huge inequalities and injustices, the censorship, the youth can't tolerate that. Um, and they will fight, and they will resist, and they will react against it. And the crisis will produce class struggle in China on a scale that we've never seen before in history. At the moment, um, there's a repressive regime trying to hold society down. You cannot do that forever. No matter how many cameras you put on the streets, no matter how big the internet police is, no, how many, no matter how much re- many resources you dedicate to controlling society, if you fail to guarantee growing living standards and progress in society as a whole, and you slow down and you enter into crisis, inevitably that is going to unleash unleash the class struggle. And the problem with a dictatorial regime like this is that sometimes you can you, you can see it. You, an eruption of class struggle can come seemingly from nowhere. Um, and, and yet it's burrowing away under the surface, preparing to come to the surface at some point, And then we will see a huge transformation in, in society. Now, we have to have the correct analysis of what China is, because it determines your program. It what determines... It, de- it determines your, your, your attitude towards such a system. And it's clear that the program in China has to be nationalize all the multinational corporations operating in uh, in China under workers' control, renationalize what's been privatized under democratic workers' control, and integrate those together with what's left of the state sector, which is still sizable, but introduce genuine democratic workers' control over the whole economy and the concept of electing the officials, right of recall, i.e. the workers who elect their delegates to a higher body have the right to recall them if they don't carry out the policies or if they're dissatisfied with them, and the concept of no bureaucrat no official must earn more than the average wage of a skilled worker in China. That's something this bureaucracy could never, ever accept. But it's a necessity to guarantee the genuine communist future of China and not all we have today. I leave it there because my time has, has, has expired. I have a lot more I would like to say. But this is the basic outline of the position that we've developed over the past uh, decades, I would say, and there is more material, written material available, um, if comrades obviously want to deepen their understanding of this uh,
0: process. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Marx's Voice. You can subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes, or any major podcast provider. Or visit our website at www.socialist.net And if you're able to, please donate or subscribe online and help support us in the struggle for socialism.